Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson and I'm joined as ever by Mr. Ben Mitchell. Hello, Ben. Hello. This is our 25th, our silver anniversary podcast, so we are getting on. You should be a bit more excited. We should, there should be a parade, there should be street parties. There should be a bit more, you know, a bit more pomp and circumstance. I have a feeling the animation uh, audience out there is celebrating in their own ways, with their own uh, trademark joie de vivre of possibly a, a vaguely perceptible nod of acknowledgement as they wait for their render to finish. <laughs> don't don't party too hard. You know, that's the that's the message. You know, drink responsibly. Mm-hmm. I've seen any amazing animations or some, uh, I don't know, anything good? I have to say, I'm, I'm really kind of energized with what's, uh, what's going on out there. It's been a pretty amazing month, actually. Month and a half, a couple, I mean, just so much stuff that's coming up that is so kind of tailor-made to my sort of specific cultural interests. Regrettably, none of them have anything to do with animation. <laughs> but I'm very happy that there's, you know, new Twin Peaks, new Clyde Barker, Primus and Chuck it came back this month. Uh, Faith No More in the studio again. Life is very good. So if you could steer my attention in the right direction, who do we have on this episode of the Squiggly Podcast? Excellent. Well, we've got an interview with uh, Robert Kondo and Dice Tsumi, the uh, directors of a fantastic film that's been doing the rounds at festivals and scooping awards hither and thither. It's The Dam Keeper. We also have an interview with Jorge Gutierrez, the director of The Book of Life, the latest film from Real Effects Studios, as well as a chat with Lisa Hanawalt, who is the art designer behind Bojack Horseman. Sounds like another beefy podcast. So before we turn it over to the uh, practitioners of animation who have, let's face facts, frankly way more interesting things to say about the industry than you or I, let's talk a little bit about what else has been going on since we were with you all last. It's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, it, it seems that we record these podcasts and they're almost like an invitation for news because as soon as we put them out, loads of news happens in the first week and then there's three weeks of pretty much nothing <laughs> and then we release another podcast. So the news in this podcast might seem a little bit old but still really worth kind of chatting about. There's been some exciting um, developments in sort of features and awards and all kinds of stuff. So let's start off really with the kind of the oldest bit of news and that's that the... Uh, the trailer for the, the next Pixar film, Inside Out, has been released. Mm-hmm. Have you seen this, Ben? What do you reckon? I did see the teaser trailer that was released, and I was I was underwhelmed, mm-hmm. mainly because, as I sort of voiced in a couple of podcasts over the summer, the actual film itself looks to be quite impressive. But you don't really see that in this trailer. Yeah. It was this very kind of laying on the the something that i don't usually associate with uh pixar but a kind of sappy maudlin emotional you know forced nostalgia to it you know the emotions and joy we've all shared of uh, our time with you the audience bringing you such movie magic all right take it down a notch it struck me as as coasting you know, it was like, well, we've released Finding Nemo, so this is going to be great. And it's like, well, no, no you've, you've got a lot of work to do. You can't really show your past efforts as, as a kind of preview for what's coming up 
you know, you're advertising one film, you're not advertising your back catalogue. It, it, it seemed as, as though it could have been like a kind of a, a, a snippet for like a trade fair, you know, to buy the Pixar brand or something. It didn't seem like they were really showcasing this film, which you've um, described as amazing. And others who, who were at Annecy and saw Pete Doctor's presentation have described as amazing. It just seemed to me like the easiest and quickest thing to do. It almost seemed like it was rushed as well. Like, like the maybe, you know, there was a threat that bits were going to be leaked so they had to release a, a, a quick trailer. You know, I'm sure a lot of effort goes into trailers. A heck of a lot of effort goes into trailers. But I couldn't see that in this particular trailer. I couldn't see everything that you described to me. I couldn't see... I couldn't see something to look forward to. For the, the quite simple reason, th- there isn't any of that in it. Mm-hmm. It's, and, and it may be that when it comes to, to more footage of this film coming out and there being more of a trailer that, that features dialogue from the film, that still you may be sort of unmoved by it. But I think that ultimately the, the tone of the film has been completely misrepresented. And I'm, I have it in front of me, and I'm going to do a little critical dissection of why this trailer, to me, was a bit of a misfire. First of all, as you pointed out, it's it's basically a sort of Pixar showreel. For the first 50 seconds, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous, they could have done that basically because it's a film about emotion. They're like ascribing various clips from their back catalogue with various emotions. They could have done that in 15 seconds. It's It's five words, for Christ's sake. People can read. Secondly, it is sort of once they get to the actual footage from the new film, it's all completely out of context. It's all relying on these very ambiguous sort of abstract visuals of you're not entirely sure what's going on. And then it's sort of revealed this is what this this magical world inside the head of this little girl. And you see the little girl and the parents at the uh, dining room table. All right. Mm-hmm. That scene with the little girl and the parents at the dining room table. And you may disagree when you see it, but I thought it was hilarious because when they actually when you actually see the exchange she has with the parents and the way it relates to what's going on inside her head and what's going on inside her parents head it's beautifully choreographed um perfectly well observed it's basically her first pre-adolescent tantrum (laughs) where she goes from being you know cute little kid to just a snot and it's every parent and person who has that strong memory of being a teenager would relate to that very well. Mm-hmm. Now, probably if they put in a scene like that in the trailer, they don't want to give it away too much. But when you just see these sort of like establishing shots and the fade ins and the fades out and look, their little um, goofy emotions are jumping up and down and uh, it really doesn't present the tone of, of the film. Or maybe it does. And the clips that we were shown in the summer at Annecy misrepresent the tone and they picked them for that reason. I'd hope that's not the case. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and you, oh, and the last shot, worst of all, the, there's a character played by Phyllis Smith that's quite clearly modeled on Phyllis Smith. <laughs> and she just can't, she's the sadness character, and she's this little chubby blue orb. She kind of walks onto the screen looking sad and then walks off again, which, believe it or not, that's actually quite funny if you know the context of the character. She's a mope, but it's not like you're meant to feel sorry for her. Mm-hmm. And it's like, snap out of it. You're, you're a downer. So to have her sort of come on and be like, mm, and then come off again, 
Like, that's sort of funny for that character, but without knowing the characterization, it's like, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to make you feel for this indeterminate thing that's just kind of being cute and walking away? Mm-hmm. I would say, don't be too disheartened by this trailer. I think that, that better things will come as far as this film is concerned. Good. I, I, I mean, I've got an awful lot of faith in, in Pete Doctor. He's one of the Pixar directors that that pretty much has got an amazing track record. Hmm. He could make everyone cry in 10 minutes of up. I mean, you know, the guy's got skills. Mm-hmm. The trailer did win me over at the end, just because I like puns, and I think a major emotion picture is is a pretty good tagline. I'll give him that. Well, I'm... <laughs> I'm happy for you. That's that's the thing for me. I mean, I mean that, but that just goes to show how how crap the rest of the trailer was for me. Really, you know, that's the bit that I liked. They could have just just put that line up, just black with that in the foreground, that one line for two minutes, and I just sat there chuckling like an idiot. It's like two words at once. <laughs> <laughs> we. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad that there's something that's kept you on board. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're looking at nostalgic kind of, you know, lookbacks and things like that. The Popeye animation test, and this is going way back, but worth chatting about, I think, in, in today's context as the inside out. That was pretty decent, wasn't it? I mean, that started off with a kind of, you know, a, a, a bit of a sort of maudling showreel of, of oh, I love Popeye, look how nostalgic I am for this, look how nostalgic... It was still, you know, it started with nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And then what we were shown, you know, if that's representative of the film, my God, 2016 can't come soon enough. Um, Did you see this? I've seen it. I mean, I'm, I think it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Forgive me, but there's no enthusiasm I can truly manufacture for a new Popeye film, but I will enjoy tremendously looking at sequences from it. Yes. I mean, just the, the trailer alone, you can analyze it frame by frame and you know, they're, they're, they're doing it. They're finally, they finally captured that thing that has been so absent from, you know, not just CG animation, but even 2d animation that completely free. I mean, this is a CG rubber hose cartoon. Mm-hmm. which we've never really seen done properly, you know? Uh, Hotel Transylvania was was in a similar vein, but it re- didn't really get the kind of um, appraisal it deserved. Would you say that it evoked that sort of very first dawn of animation? How do you mean? In the way that this... Well, when I say rubber hose, oh, I you mean... You mean 20s, you mean the original Fleischer stuff, which this Popeye thing goes back to. Yeah. Uh, no, I wouldn't. Oh, you, you're right there. Um, but this kind of... But, but Hotel Transylvania had some kind of incredible animated kind of exaggerated poses and, and things like that in it. You know, it did it did have an awful lot more to it than the average sort of shot. And that just... That's, that's Gendy Tartakovsky um, kind of pushing animation to the limit. Push it to the limit. But you are right, yeah. This is just a this kind of rubber hose to the max, really. This is the sort of as pushing as far as it will go. I'm very glad that this is, you know, this is something that people a are doing and and that people would be excited about. Again, I'm, I'm probably not going to be first in line to go see the film, but good on them. Well, no, because I'll be first in line. Uh-huh. You, no one's getting in front of me. <laughs> I won't stand in the way of your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> the Bob the Builder reboot 
Have you seen this? You seen Bob the Builder being re- redesigned? You can't miss it. You know, like a scarcely avoid it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's everywhere, like Rennie Zellweger's face. How dare they? <laughs> yeah, how, how dare they? Indeed, yeah. And, and and the thing that annoys me the most about this, and what what has annoyed me the most about this, is not the redesign itself. You can see why they've redesigned it, why they've had to redesign it. You know, it's a toy company who wants to sell toys. Of course, they've redesigned it. Case closed. You know, but the, the thing that gets me is that you read um, what the papers have to say about it, um, such as like the Daily Mail or the Mirror, and they say the new series of Bob the Builder won't be done in stop motion. And that riles people. People get really upset. People are going, what, what, what? They're not doing Bob the Builder in stop motion anymore? The the craft is gone. How dare they? These people are clearly clueless to the fact that Bob the Builder hasn't been stop motion since 2010. Is that something that bothers you? Yeah, well, kind of annoys me. Does it grind your gears? It grinds my... (laughs) yeah maybe um well yeah i mean i again um it would be insincere to contrive an opinion either way but i do understand your point uh of course i think that um i mean i wouldn't feel sort of bothered by people you know not knowing that they've stopped doing it in stop motion having sort of left the the bob the builder fold because they probably haven't you know watched it for the last four years if they're above a certain age yeah i mean bob the builder to be perfectly frank i mean that was post my childhood yeah so i couldn't i couldn't even discuss the the nostalgia value of it with any authenticity you know aside from the the christmas single beating eminem that was sort of a vaguely amusing anecdotal thing that happened 10 15 years ago Mm -hmm. um but no, the the integrity of the show itself, or whether or not its its artistic value has been compromised with this retcon or whatever the the youth <laughs> say, let them let them do their thing. You can still buy the old toys off eBay. Exactly, exactly. And the reason that it has been redesigned is basically because it is a brand. You know, the old anything still exists. You know, you don't have to look far to get it. We live in this society where we carry the internet around in our pockets. You know, we can watch videos you know with just a couple of clicks it doesn't you know you can you can get anything anywhere it's amazing but people are kind of upset because it's not 1998 anymore you know <laughs> uh, bob the builder was bought by um hit animation well it was it was designed it's created by hit animation who then sold it on to mattel so mattel need to make money off this you know there that's what their their sort of operation is they make money that's that's it, you know. So obviously they're going to redesign Bob the Builder because if you redesign Bob the Builder, you then get to sell new episodes to to new TV channels. You get to create new episodes. You get to um, present the character to a new audience, whether it's received well or not. That's yet to be seen. And in doing so, you create a new sort of revenue, new merchandise um, and kind of, you know, a new audience for the whole thing by redesigning the entire the entire thing. I'm just staggered that the new series of The Clangers, they're all wearing hot pants. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that just seemed inappropriate. The other thing that people got slightly upset about is Danger Mouse. When uh, the Danger Mouse redesign was uh, announced, that gathered a little bit of a little bit of upset as well, you know, because... Oh dear. Yeah, well, because, um, you know how we used to have an eye patch on? Yes. 
I remember that. that. That's now an eye patch, as in like it's a piece of Apple software. Oh. That's now, you know, part of the story. And so he's got now got a square eye patch. He's a lot taller. He's a lot slimmer. Um, he's been redesigned again to be able to sell a new batch of merchandise, to be able to introduce the character to a new audience, to be able to kind of extend this character's kind of um, shelf life. Because, you know, when, um, when Fremantle, you know, purchased um, all these cartoons, they didn't just think, oh, let's just recreate the, in- let's just recreate the old stuff. Because if they recreate the old stuff, then they can only sell it to the places where the old stuff's already been sold to. And maybe the old stuff's a little bit out of, out of date. You know, the last Danger Mouse episode was released in 1993 and it ran for 10 years, something like that, 93, 92. You know, so it's, it's a little out of date. Well, like there's, yeah, there's no maybe about it. It's, you're very right. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and I think that the people that are going to be sort of bothered by this, you know, the world will keep turning. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sort of saying that they're, you know, they're wrong to to feel that way or to feel strongly about it. I because I, I have definitely felt that way about reimaginings of things that I have held dear. The lunatics we've talked about mm-hmm. that was a huge misstep. Although that you know it did sort of pan out to be the case that that was sort of universally misjudged thing to do in that sort of very drastic redesign and and reimagining of. of Looney Tunes characters, and then they did this other show a few years later where it's Looney Tunes, but it's a sitcom. And that appears to have been sort of embraced a lot more so. Whether or not it still carries on now, it went on for long enough that it, it, it hit with a certain young audience that don't hold, you know, the way the Looney Tunes ensemble cast uh behaved and interacted with each other back in, you know, the 1950s, um, <laughs> that deer. Yeah. I saw a little bit of wine out of that kind of morbid curiosity when it's like, when you find yourself having had a bit of a lie-in and you're sort of like easing into the day and it's either that or Jeremy Kyle. <laughs> I, watched, I watched this new Looney Tunes thing for a few minutes and it was like, it was this weird kind of like adult writing, but without actual adult wit to it. It had the structure and musical rhythm of grown-up sitcom wit, but with no actual jokes. And I think that probably one of the reasons why kids enjoyed it is that it kind of replicated on some level the rhythm of of what grown-ups watch. Mm -hmm. Whereas obviously the older cartoons had much more of a universal appeal to both kids and grown-ups because it wasn't trying to be particularly adult. It just was very, very clever. Mm -hmm. I think, And maybe, you know, there'll be similar kind of... uh, uh, changes to the tone in Danger Mouse or Popeye, or maybe Bob the Builder's work ethic will be represented differently, <laughs> and that will be completely objectionable to, you know, the parents of children when they sort of... Yeah, anyway. He's got a pretty strong work ethic. Can we fix it? Yes. I mean, what's the... <laughs> maybe the new work ethic is going to be, can we fix it? Fuck you, I'm on workers' comp. Yeah. <laughs> Get stuffed, we're union, bitch. <laughs> I mean, it's an American marketplace, so that's an important part of the uh, the industrial workforce that the kids are going to need to learn about. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Always learning. Animation, it's the world's greatest educator. <laughs> so I recently signed up to the, 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 the wonder that is Netflix, Ben. After years and years, I've finally... I'm fully up to date now. I've, I've, I've stepped into 2012 and I'm fully caught up with the rest of the world. 
Um, I'm a Netflix subscriber, and one of the things that came with Netflix was this new show, BoJack Horseman, which uh, you told me to watch. Mm-hmm. Is that why you signed up to Netflix? Well, it's a month's free trial as well. Uh-huh. Also, there's kind of Lego Marvel animations as well, which, you know, I'm into my high art, mm. so, yeah. Yeah. I think they cater to all sorts of uh, audiences, and, and people who like animation will be accommodated. You know, they have stuff from Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, new stuff, old chestnuts. I'm personally quite fond of the Netflix rebranding of Foghorn Leghorn, which they call House of Cards. <laughs> but I f- know Foghorn Leghorn when I see him. Yeah. That vast president. <laughs> nice boy, but about as sharp as a sack of wet mice. We get it. You're from the South. <laughs> it's a very good show. That's a probably a very good impression as well, Ben. I'll give you that. So BoJack is uh, is the, I think, it's one of a couple of original animated series uh, made for Netflix. Netflix have, have done a few original shows, like uh, Orange is the New Black and uh, Orange is the New Black Season 2. It's it's finding its way with, uh, with, with mixed results, mixed uh, mm-hmm. reviews, certainly. And uh, BoJack is a kind of semi-adult swim-esque type uh, uh, venture into uh, economic sitcom animation, and it's been quite polarizing. Yes, it has. Uh, what's your opinion of it? I uh, was, I'm not going to lie, I got into the first couple of episodes and was pretty much about to give up on it. And then something happens about three, four, five episodes in, a, a switch goes off. And it falls into place. And I think it's what that's about is the nature of producing a show where all the episodes are going to be released at once Mm -hmm. in a season. I think that probably a lot of the pre-production and development work and the kinds of things that probably you wouldn't see in the first episodes of an animated show, the sort of development, finding the footing, finding the character dynamics. I think what you see, this is a theory, I may be wrong, but I think what you're seeing in the first three episodes of this show is them finding out a way to make the show work. Right. But And it has its moments, certainly. There are nice little moments of, of funny dialogue. But um, it, it goes to show there's a big upswing when it, when it finds its way and it finds its footing. And all of a sudden, you get a pacing, you get good character banter. The character exploration is, is quite sophisticated the type of show it is it's quite well thought out mm. in spite of itself i think it, it maybe there was a sort of uh, hesitancy in terms of taking the the characterizations seriously because it takes place in this ridiculous world of sort of human animals mm-hmm. uh, sort of part, part cat part woman part horse part man etc maybe because that has this kind of automatic farcical inability to, to suspend disbelief maybe they weren't willing to commit to full characterization because once they actually say no f- it, we're going to tell a story that we want to tell then it just becomes a much better show and it doesn't matter that it's a horse mm, right you know what i mean so i think there's a long if it hopefully it has the opportunity to carry on i think that uh, there's a long road ahead of it mm-hmm. but based on certainly the second two-thirds to the second half of this first season, I think that there's a lot of potential and I'm quite excited about where it could go. And I'm so rarely excited about new shows of this type. It could be something good. Hopefully it won't burn out before it can, uh, can get started, but uh, 
I'm I'm intrigued. You want to see more? See what they do to see what they do with it. Certainly. Hmm. Yeah. I've only got through, I think, four episodes. I only signed up last night. However, hearing you say that kind of confirms something for me because all these shows were released at once. They're all released. All thirteen episodes. Bang. They're released for binge watching. So perhaps it's a little bit unfair of me to judge it by the first three, four episodes I've seen. I mean, Patton Oswalt as a seal, a Navy seal, was really funny. So I'm contradicting myself there massively. I don't think it'd be a a podcast if I wasn't contradicting myself. You have ambivalence toward the the dynamic of the show. Yes, and the character isn't incredibly likeable. You know, it just seems like a kind of self-indulgent who just goes around Hollywood getting into scrapes. The way I'm sort of describing it, I hope it makes people interested because it is a very interesting show. I've still got to watch more. Clearly, evidently, I still need to watch more to get into it, to get to the level that you are with it. I think a lot of it is sort of personal taste and personal humour, but from what you've described of your issues with it thus far, they're quite familiar issues, which is that there is a, a lack of dimension to the character at this point. But you have only spent a couple of hours with them. Mm. When it passes this certain point, which I would suspect you're just about to hit, all of a sudden a big strength of the show starts to manifest itself in that it's about humanity. And it's about the humanity of people who are narcissistic to the point of you know being emotional cripples. And there are all sorts of different character studies within that spectrum of, of self-involvement and self-delusion. His agent, played by Amy Sedaris, for example, there's one episode dealing with her character that is a perfect deconstruction of the non-organic alpha female, the woman who is so has been sort of almost bullied into behaving a certain way in spite of herself. This kind of manufactured self-assuredness and, and confidence is actually quite destructive to her emotionally. Which is a, I, something that I find to be quite a serious issue, and it's it's common in industry. Women are sort of pressured to be one of the one of the lads, mm-hmm. and men are sort of pressured to be one of the bullies. So it's this whole kind of like system of power plays and competition where there needn't be competition. Mm-hmm. I thought that the way that was sort of dealt with, as regards her character, was uh, was very well done. And I think once they kind of peel away the scar tissue of the main character of Bojack. And you sort of learn more about what there is to him. It's like, ah, okay, that's what they were going for. Or that's what they decided to go for at a certain point. Maybe that was the plan all along. Interesting. You know what a snob I am about story and structure and character development. Mm -hmm. I think if it was just sort of completely vacant and just gags i would probably dip into it but i probably wouldn't have watched it in order yeah or i'd watch like it like like how you'd watch an average episode of family guy you can't sleep so it'll probably be on bbc3 yeah <laughs> let's face facts <laughs> and that poor woman who what the continuity announcer for bbc3 who has to remain enthusiastic <laughs> coming up next more family guy <laughs> they, they just keep coming i don't know <laughs> when do I get to leave? <laughs> she should win a f-ing BAFTA. Yeah. <laughs> now, also, you may find that when you when you sort of carry on with the show and you see them explore the characters a bit more, you might find it at odds with the design style or the strange universe that they inhabit, which is something that I I, I would expect would be a criticism from some people. I personally didn't have an issue with that. There are probably things that could have been done 
just as well were a live action show. But I think that given the nature of an animated show's production, they probably have more freedom to explore ideas and less sort of pressure from, uh, you know, the sort of non-creative contributors to say a network live action sitcom. Yeah. You know, so it's, uh, I think that would be certainly a benefit of it. So a big part of the overall design style is down to, fittingly, the designer, uh, Bojack Horseman. Uh, her name is Lisa Hanawalt. And she is a uh, comic artist and got quite a good body of work behind her as an illustrator. She was brought on board the show by the creator, a gentleman named Raphael Bob Waxberg, and they had uh, known each other for some time before then. And uh, it's just one of these things, I guess the stars aligned from what I, I gather from sort of working with her in their sort of student days, probably at the back of his mind, he had uh, wanted to you know, bring her on board if he were ever in the position to develop a show, and that's uh, exactly what happened. So let's turn it to Lisa Hanawalt, the art designer for Bojack Horseman, the uh, latest adult animated sitcom from Netflix. Well, congratulations on the second Thank season, you. and uh, I'm, Thank uh, you. I'm looking forward to seeing more of this show. It's uh, Oh, that's so nice. We, um, especially in the UK, right now everyone just tries to do an English family guy. Oh, which, <laughs> I know. It's sort of ten years late to the table on that one, mm-hmm. um, and they and it, these days it comes with the protestation. Oh no, we're not trying to do that. We're trying to do something completely original, and it just never is. It's just always the same kind of formulas, and, and it's tough because like nothing's completely original, but you you hope that you're bringing something new to to culture. <laughs> well, even just in terms of of how it looks visually and what kind of stories are being told, mm-hmm. you know. I think the story, the sort of main premise of, of BoJack is is really quite good in terms of, it has such sort of potential and such sort of purchase and human desperation mm-hmm. and uh, the ego and the sort of the, the quest for fame and all of that, uh-huh. you know. But uh, I guess to sort of t- talk about your particular involvement with it, how would you say it all sort of began? Is this something that you'd been involved in from like a very early stage or yeah when my what my high school friend Raphael um he's the creator of the show and he first pitched this idea he included some of my drawings with it um and it was somewhat inspired by my animal people drawings um when he was you know thinking of ideas for tv shows but also sort of about uh, mostly about his experiences uh living in hollywood and that sort of feeling of loneliness even when you're doing really well and you're on top of the world so he brought in my drawings with his pitch and then he started working on it and um yeah from the beginning i was brought on to design the characters and uh then later i came back on to art direct backgrounds and work on the presentation episode which is like our pilot so yeah i've been really involved from the beginning excellent which is crazy like i've never worked in animation or tv before i was just doing comics and illustration mostly have you found that transition easier easier than i expected Uh um there's definitely some a steep learning curve and some rough patches but overall it's worked really well um i mean it helps that i i'm at this amazing animation studio called shadow machine and there's just like tons and tons of brilliant animators here who are helping to translate my vision and and adding in their own creativity and their own ideas that's kind of the biggest difference really i'm used to working alone and then suddenly i'm like working with tons and tons of people but it's really exciting so when you worked on a a pilot was that um 
its own sort of entity. I mean, what I'm sort of fascinated with is the whole structure of how, like, say, a Netflix commission show would come together from day one. So when you're putting together a pilot at that stage, is it just that one half hour? It was actually 10 or 11 minutes long, Uh I think. And it was kind of a mix of stuff from episode one and episode two, if you watch the show. Uh Uh-huh. Like, it had Neil the Seal and that sort of bit at the grocery store. Um, But then, yeah, it had sort of interview parts from episode one. And, um, yeah, it was kind of just a way to introduce the characters and what they were all about. And um, after Netflix saw the presentation, they didn't even want a pilot, like a full-length pilot. They just um, wanted 12 episodes. So it worked out well. So from that to the the main show, were there any significant changes or did they just want you to keep it as is? Uh, they really let us keep it as is. Like, it really, really st- sticks to what Raphael's original vil- vision for the show would be, which is great. I think if we had sold to a different network, we would have had to make a lot of compromises and edit stuff a lot more. But, yeah, Netflix gives us a lot of freedom. Certainly, certainly. I think that also the kind of... It doesn't limit the range of expression for that kind of subject matter, so you can have some quite caustic conversations and And they let it go really really dark and in fact they were excited by that idea um where i could see other people being sort of worried about it i think they were really looking for something sort of unique and clearly coming from a single creator and we couldn't have been luckier (laughs) and they give so few notes too it's it's really nice we feel really free here so had you done much work with uh rafael before yes after college um Uh, We were on separate coasts. He was at Bard College and I was at UCLA. And after we graduated, um, we started doing a webcomic together. We did it for two years. It was called Tip Me Over, Pour Me Out. And he would write it and I would illustrate it. And it came out like once or twice a month. So yeah, that was our main collaboration. But uh, there wasn't really anything between that and this. Back then, was an animated series something that he was going for? Not specifically, but... When we were, we, we met in high school and we used to hang out and joke around about our ideas for TV shows. Um, you know, I never would have expected it to actually happen. But yeah, I mean, Raphael was kind of always headed in that direction. He's such a good writer and he loves TV. <laughs> well, I think also it's, it's going back to the sort of limitlessness of what you can do, comparatively speaking, certainly, that there's actual substance to the stories themselves mm-hmm. and that there's a sense of real kind of humanity to the characters, especially, you know, Bojack. And it doesn't just sort of resort to all the things you're allowed to do, mm-hmm. only when it's sort of necessary for the humor or the sort of, you know, for effect, I guess. You buy into that universe very quickly. Yeah. I certainly found as a viewer, and I think that um, that's really sort of testament to the visuals and the writing sort of working together quite harmoniously. Mm-hmm. Were there ever any sort of concerns about that being an issue for audiences? Or I mean, when it came out, I think a lot of people were like, ooh, this is weird. Like, this is a really strange, surreal show. But I've never thought of that as being a strange way to do artwork and to express myself. I've always drawn animal people since I was really little. It was one of the first things I ever started drawing. Um, And if you look back through art history, there's a long, long history of people drawing animals as people. And it just works so well for allegory and for expressing emotions. And it's also funny. Um, Are you more at ease doing animals and say, the sort of strictly human characters? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I love doing the animal characters. In fact, when I first get a script and I look at all the characters that we're going to need coming up, I... um, 
I almost always start with the animals and leave the humans for last because they're less fun. I just feel like I can be wackier with the animals and use more textures and colors and just get more creative a little bit. So as far as what is sort of brought to you with each episode, uh, is it sort of put together like, say, a network television show would have been, say, sort of week by week? Or is it all sort of worked out at the beginning and then sort of broken down? episodically as far as like what characters need to be designed and it is, what's called for. And, it is broken down episodically and roughly chronologically, but um, I am kind of doing a lot of things concurrently because like not only we have like storyboarders and writers and the actors doing voice recording and all of that has to sort of sync up in this way. Like, um, you know, like I'll start designing a character uh, like, I don't know, a fish. And then in the storyboarder will be like, Oh, actually I was thinking of that as more of a crow. Um, and then we have to kind of talk to the writers and see what they want. And it's, it's all very, um, that's yeah. The hardest thing, but also the most fun thing is like trying to sync up with all these different groups doing their own thing. Um, and making sure that it makes sense across the board. And, uh, like right now I'm designing characters for the first three episodes of the second season, all kind of at the same time right. and moving back and forth based on, what the writers want and what the storyboarders want. And yeah, it's fun. It feels like juggling. <laughs> as far as like the people who are brought on to do the voices uh, for the characters, is, are they sort of in mind at the beginning or are they sort of cast after the designs are done? It depends. A lot of the side characters are sort of cast after the fact, and then it doesn't really matter what they look like for the main actors. Um, I'd say that their voice acting definitely makes me think differently about the design. A couple of characters I'm actually waiting to design right now because we haven't cast them yet. And if right. they have like a deeper, more manly voice, say, then I'm probably going to change the way their face looks um, as opposed to a more boyish, innocent voice. It really does make a difference. Probably who I'm sort of most enamored of is the, um, in the first season, uh, Patton Oswalt mm -hmm. as the beleaguered publisher. Oh, the penguin. And Pinky just the desperation <laughs> yeah. in his body and his voice and everything is just wonderful he's so terrific we were lucky to get him to do a whole bunch of uh side characters he's wonderful so great sort of cross-section of of really good sort of contemporary humorists and and stand-ups that are sort of involved in this and it's, it's great to see so many you know very gifted very talented people yeah all sort of come together yeah people like maria bamford and Kristen shawl and paul of tompkins i mean like, a lot yeah. of my favorite comedians are on this. It's excellent. I mean, and also, of course, you know, Will Arnett and uh, Aaron Paul, yeah. essentially, the sort of leads. And I'm, I'm always very happy to see Will Arnett in something mm -hmm. good. Yeah, you know? I know. Because, I mean, <laughs> it's the nature of the beast to, to careers have their peaks and valleys. But, of course, when he has good material, he's he always hits it out of the park. And he, he really brings his own talent to the table like just watching him in the voice recording sessions it's clear what a tremendous talent he is mm -hmm. he's just very charismatic and, and really smart and funny he's never just reading the lines that's for sure what sort of stage did he get on board with it and i suppose aaron paul as well i do not remember <laughs> um i mean it was at some point when we were working on the presentation um because they they were in the original presentation them and Paul F. Tompkins and Keith Olbermann and Amy Sedaris, pretty much most of our main cast was in the presentation. So yeah, they were on board pretty early. And that, that actually really helped to sell the show, I think. Well, I think also with someone like Aaron Paul, who is so very much still hot off what became such an instant 
classic. Yeah. And to do something that, I mean, it's, it's hard to, you couldn't really say that they're hugely disparate characters, but they're played so differently. Yeah. In a way that it's sort of... It's very chicken or the egg. It's like, is he good for this character because that's sort of what his voice lends itself towards? Or Mm. it's sort of um, random chance, but he's really good at it. (laughs) I don't know. I just just really like what he brings to to Todd's character. Yeah, something a little more sort of happy-go-lucky. He's a little puckish. He's definitely... (laughs) He's like the comic relief in a lot of these really sad dark episodes Mm. you kind of need him there as bojack's foil yeah from your perspective it it does seem that this show has gotten a really positive audience response and i guess certainly as far as netflix are concerned they want to carry on with it so Mm -hmm. the signs must be good have you witnessed a sort of strong response to it oh yeah i mean sometimes i'll look at the like bojack hashtag on twitter and it's just crazy how many people are watching it and responding to it and um i don't know me and Raphael did like a reddit ama and and there were so many fans asking questions and there's people who are like really excited to dress as bojack for halloween and that's really surreal and awesome and um there's like fan art on tumblr it's just crazy i love it it's really exciting it makes me feel really excited to to be working on the next season i just kind of can't wait for people to see it cool especially sort of seeing how Toward the end of the first season, there was more sort of opening up as far as more experimental with some of the artwork and the visual work. I mean, I think the penultimate yeah. episode in particular. It's hard to do that because it takes so much time. And um, uh-huh. we definitely, you know, we, we were working fast. But I'm hoping to get more of that kind of thing into this season. We have a little bit more time. We definitely, like, saved up a lot of our energy and manpower for, like, episode 11, for example, where we had a lot more going on visually. And so is, is this actual storytelling itself and, and the writing something that you ever weigh in on or would like to? Uh, not really. I mean, no. I do talk to Raphael a lot and he bounces a lot of ideas off me. And that's just fun, partly because I just want to know what happens next. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, I definitely have opinions about everything and, and I'll be a loud mouth about it. Uh-huh. But I don't like sit in the writer's room or anything. Mm-hmm. They do their thing. They're good at it. I don't know how to write a TV show. <laughs> I'm good at I'm good at writing like background puns. <laughs> <laughs> you do your own um, books and things as well. Um, yes, I do. Uh, you're doing uh, well. How did you get uh, hooked up with Drawn in Quarterly? Um, I just sort of knew them um, casually through doing comics for years, and then um, I was wanting to put together a larger book and pitch it around. And then at the same time, uh, Tom Devlin. Uh, from John and Quarterly wrote me an email. It's just like, hey, do you want to pitch us an idea? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> it was very casual. I just said, how about an anthology of work that I've done and plus some new stuff? And he said, okay. And now I'm working on my second book for them, which is more food-themed, sort of loosely. Um, and it's called Hot Dog Taste Test. <laughs> nice. And it's uh, kind of a collection of uh, articles that I've been writing for Lucky Peach, which is a food magazine. Okay. Are they like recipes or Not really. Pieces? Not really. I mean, um, they're very journalistic. Like, uh, usually for Lucky Peach, what I'll do is I'll go have an experience. Like, for one uh, issue, I went to Vegas and I ate at all-you-can-eat buffets. For another one, I went swimming with otters. And then I sort of wrote loosely about seafood, but mostly it was just about otters. Um, For the next one, I'm writing about uh, a trip I took to Argentina. So it's sort of travel writing, but it's very silly and there's a lot of weird jokes, and I put my own sort of surreal spin on things. I think I uh, I remember one of your pieces uh, from the site 
that that brings to mind, and it just it did make me chuckle quite a bit. I'm trying to it's the illustration, the t-shirt slogan: "Every day you're not covered in otters" is a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely yeah, <laughs> that was just something I sketched after swimming with otters because like immediately, you know, I only got to swim with them for like half an hour and mm. then I was just so sad when it was over. <laughs> <laughs> they are really, really cute. So the book that's out at uh, the moment is called Dirty Dumb Eyes. Yes, My Dirty Dumb Eyes. And it's sort of, yeah, it's kind of a like a Lisa Hanwell collection. It's a lot of a lot of old work and new work and kind of random stuff thrown in. It's it's really like a grab bag, but I I like having it as a way to introduce people to all the different things that I do. It's got a lot of like illustrated movie reviews, which I used to be really into doing. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Are there any particular people in that world, sort of within Drawn and Quarterly, or sort of outside of that, perhaps, but like graphic novels or illustration that you sort of hold in particularly high regard oh god i don't even know where to start hmm. um it is a bit, pretty loaded one i suppose yeah i mean <laughs> i'm just gonna name all my friends if i answer that question but a comic i just read that i really like is uh this one summer which is by um, mariko and jillian tamaki jillian is one of the best cartoonists working today she has a book coming out next year called super mutant magic academy and it's based on a web comic that she does and you can read a bunch of it online if you check it out michael deforge is really great he does a lot of he just is constantly making new work he's just so prolific and he's a really good writer as well i like i like cartoonists who can write as well as they draw um forgetting i i just read brian lee o'malley's new book seconds and that one is really good it was it sort of took me to some unexpected places yeah, I don't know. I could go on and on. <laughs> it is a pretty giant universe. Yeah. I mean, the reason I got into comics is because I like them so much. And um, I used to read Dan Klaus and Adrian Tomina, and I, I still will read anything that they put out. I love Renee French, Phoebe Glockner. Um, right now I'm reading Linda Berry's new book, and I'm already like mm. just want to cry with every page because she's so insightful and intelligent and also just really fun and makes me want to draw. <laughs> It is a, a very good company, the sort of drawn and quarterly yeah. crowd, and I think that they're, they're just nice people too. They're yeah. just like fun to hang out with. I think they just have a really good personality as a company. <laughs> mm. Well, I'm uh, looking forward to the next book. So, you think it's going to be next year? I think so. I mean, it's it's tough because. Um, you know, I started waiting to see if BoJack would be picked up for another season. And now that it is, I'm like, hey, guys, it might take me a little longer to do this book. Mm. I'm a little busy. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm working on it. We'll see. Are there any sort of talks at the moment of expanding the sort of BoJack universe beyond a series to, say, sort of graphic novels? or? No, not yet. This is the first time I've actually thought of that. <laughs> it's one of those things that you kind of see usually for shows aimed for a younger audience when you see like yeah, a graphic novel that and has thinking the, now like oh there are adventure time comics and stuff and mm. um but in a way you could almost picture something like bojack being i don't know something that that has more of that graphic novel feel than say just a kind of comic version of a cartoon yeah you know, something that could be its own kind of entity no, I could totally see it going that way. Um, I don't know if that's occurred to Raphael yet or, or to anyone else, but yeah, maybe. Never say never. We'll see. <laughs> cool. Excellent. Well, um, oh, something I just sort of uh, realized about 10 minutes before I, uh, I called you. I have something that I think you worked on. Oh, really? Uh, which is always <laughs> nice. This was Kristen Schaal's book. Oh, 
with a sexy book of sexy sex. That was one of my first uh, illustration jobs. Did you do all the illustration in this? I did the chapter openers, and I did the what I got hired for originally to do was the uh, porn version of uh, Where's Waldo? Ah, yes. Where's Wildo? Um, that was my, my masterpiece at the time. But um, uh, Michael Kupperman did most of the illustrations in the book. Cool. Excellent. Um, yeah, that was a really fun job. I got really lucky getting that. Now, I mean, that's sort of, with Kristen Shaw working on the show, is she someone that you know kind of outside of those two projects? or Only through, I met, I met her when I did that book, and then um, she blurbed my book. At John and Quarterly, and so we got to do like a like a book signing event together. We got to do like a live radio thing, um, and so I think that was maybe part of why she joined BoJack. I'm not sure, <laughs> but yeah, I don't, I don't know her that well. But well, it's, yeah. it's just sort of great to, and she did such a wonderful job as that uh, the child star as Sarah Lynn. Yeah, she's she's just incredible. I love her. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'll let you get back. Yeah, I got to get back to work. <laughs> but thanks so much for taking the time, and uh, uh, this has been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you. So thank you to Lisa Hannawalt for uh, chatting with us about working on BoJack Horseman. And uh, as I said before, I'm quite enthusiastic about uh, the second season and uh, where it will go. Hopefully somewhere good, obviously. Because despite my cynical exterior, Stephen, I actually have a sense of enthusiasm for exciting developments in the animation world and the positive directions it can go. Good. Frankly, I'm a little starved of it. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm, I, part of me is, you know, please be good. You know. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Maybe season 28 of The Simpsons will scratch that itch, but maybe, just maybe it won't. <laughs> So the nights are drawing in. It's getting darker and darker. And, um, you know, we, we all know what that means, Ben. It means that it's nearly award season. And award season has started. It seems to get earlier and earlier every year. Like like seeing Christmas trees up in shopping centres. So, yes, today, at the time of recording, um, the Scottish BAFTAs have been announced. Um, it's, it's, quite, it's been quite a strong year for Scottish animation, I think. Have you heard of that guy, uh, Norman McLaren? <laughs> He's been... F- everywhere this year <laughs> i might have heard of him yeah i think his star is rising you know yeah yeah so this year um the scottish baftas uh nominees are the monkey love experiments will anderson ainsley henderson uh, cameron fraser seafront by claire lebond and spectators by ross hogg um we've had an interview with uh, will and ains and ross hogg as part of the kind of Edinburgh International Film Festival podcast specials we did, so you can listen back to them if you want. It begs the question, what have you got against poor old Claire? Well, she's a difficult woman to get hold of, Ben. <laughs> uh-huh. She's not even on Twitter. Oh, dearie me. And yet she got nominated for a BAFTA. Mm. It must be a heck of a good film, then. It's a very good film, yeah. She shies away from the spotlight. <laughs> she, she had the audience in tears at the screening. Um, at the McLaren screening this year, yeah. all, all the kind of the filmmakers got up on stage afterwards, and and uh, everyone was still sort of choking, choking back tears and dabbing their eyes and things. It's a weepy. It's a weepy, Ben. Wait, is it is it weepier than the monkey one? Uh, yes, yes, it is. Yeah, it, I mean the monkey one's incredibly sad. Monkey love experiments is incredibly sad. But you didn't weep any 
substances. No, no, I, f- I felt sadder watching the monkey love experiments because I, I can I can relate more to monkeys than than humans. But the seafront got the bigger audience reaction. I see. And Spectators is just a brilliant film. So, it turns out not only the Scottish can be nominated for BAFTAs, but children can too. Well, not really. Children's programming, I suppose, if we're going to go into the semantics of it. What are your faves? What are your picks? What are your predictions? Uh, Well, it's nice to see the amazing world of Gumball and and Sean the Sheep and people that we've had dealings with throughout the last year get, um, get nominated. Should we go through the list? Because it's quite an animation-heavy list. Let's do the Cliff Notes version, because it's a pretty long one. Righto. Okay. So, let's start with Best Animation. How how about that for a start? (laughs) Um, The Amazing World of Gumball, um, Dennis the Menace and Nasher, Shaun the Sheep, and Strange Hill High, which is an animation-puppetry hybrid, uh, really. But there's still enough animation in it, I would say. Um, any particular favourites for you on there? Well, I'm only familiar really with uh, Gumball and Shaun the Sheep. Mm-hmm. Gumball itself also kind of a hybrid uh, endeavour. It has a lot of fun, playful incorporations of like live action elements, and uh, it's like a very, very economically made sort of Roger Rabbit in a lot of respects. There's always something new for the eye. You know, a new character comes around the corner, or a new something happens, or, or a new set, or something. It's great. It's a great show. And uh, you can't really speak ill of, of Sean the Sheep. Oh, no. Because <laughs> it'll do you. <laughs> He's got himself a half-hour special. It's another little bit, a little side, little segue bit of news here. Uh, but yeah, there's going to be a Sean the Sheep uh, half-hour special on Christmas next year, so 2015. It's kind of sitting in the place, I presume, of Wallace and Gromit. And, uh, and of course, with that feature, and uh, it's, it's why everyone is saying... 2015 is the year of Sean. The year of the sheep. No one's, no one, no one has said that yet. But is it actually the year of the sheep? <laughs> How? What a fucking godsend that would be. <laughs> let's let's see what it is. Let's see if it is. There is a year of the sheep. Uh, oh, 2016. Oh no, no, hang on. Yeah, 2015 to 16 is the year of the sheep. Oh f- me! <laughs> wow. Well, uh, if you're listening, Ardman, you've not said it yet, so we'll just take it. If you do use that little golden nugget <laughs> as a piece of marketing, you know, check payable to um, the Squiggly Podcast, and uh, yeah, free tickets to anything you do from now until the end of time. Thank you. Hopefully, they weren't like sort of sitting on that one as a thing to sort of reveal as part of the actual marketing, and we just ruined it. Um, where were we? Animation, Amazing World of Gumball. Dennis the Menace and Nasher. I love Dennis the Menace and Nasher. You kept that quiet. Just from there. Well, <laughs> have you seen uh, Have you seen Strange Hill High? Uh, no. Nah. Should I? It's, it's a good show. You should give it a watch. Um, it's a very kind of, uh, it's a very sort of tight production. Uh-huh. Uh, and the writing is, the writing's really good as well. I mean, it's not Breaking Bad, but it's very good, you know, uh, for a kid's show. So I'm look I'm looking at the images from it now. Yeah, they're like art toys, aren't they? What what kind of audience are we looking at here? Uh, I would say probably up to about fourteen years old. Yeah, I mean, Maybe. I'd I'd be I'd be enthusiastic to see a montage of animation from say the studio reel. Mm-hmm. You know, as but I again, it's going to be a hard one for me to 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 invest in, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe stick it on in the background. 
But then I wouldn't see the animation. It's which... not animated, it's puppets. Oh. They animate the mouths. There's the animation on the mouth. Well, that's a bit of a loophole, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, they've jumped through the they've jumped through the loop. So basically I can have it on in the background and, and the, the dialogue will carry it. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's got Richard Ayoade in it as well. Yeah. <laughs> in the comedy category, it's 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 basically stuff that's like, you know, written as comedy like uh, DNN. But um Roy appears in the comedy category, which is the kind of Who Framed Roger Rabbit-esque kind of animated thing. The the main character, Roy, is like an animated character who interacts with, uh, you know, just like a normal family. Feature film-wise, though, uh, we've probably had something to do with all these, except for the last one. Um, Frozen, uh, How to Train Your Dragon 2, and the Lego movie. Uh, and the fourth one is Maleficent, or Maleficent. Independent Production Company of the Year has got a few uh, animation studios in there. Blue Zoo, who we're both big fans of, I'm sure. Dot to Dot Productions. Uh, Factory Transmedia. They're the guys that did uh, Strange Hill High and they're doing the Clangers remake. Best International, you've got Adventure Time, which I've sort of got into. It's, uh, they're, they're, they're nice to have on in the background. We're doing a bit of scribbling. Uh, Doc McStuffins. Uh, Spongebob Squarepants and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles don't see that one catching on <laughs> preschool animation you've got Bing uh, Dino Paws um, Postman Pat and the Rubber Duck Race um, and Sarah and Duck by uh, Carrot Entertainment well I think it's sort of obvious which one of those four we kind of have the most enthusiasm for I, I, it would be nice to see Sarah and Duck take something away from an award ceremony such as this, I'd like to see um, them take a BAFTA. I think I think it's their year; they need it. They don't need it, but you know, it'd be nice to give them it. They deserve it. Not to besmirch uh, Dino Paws and Bing, which I'm sure are very noble efforts in and of themselves. Yeah, same with Postman Pat. Uh, short form, we've got CITV Share a Story, um, Gumball Song, uh, uh, Milkshake Monkey, and uh, Nina Needs to Go. Nina needs to go in its second season, I hear. Ah. Quite a few uh, uh, paisans are on that one, so uh, it's good to see them doing well. Mm-hmm. That's a Disney one, isn't it? Yeah, it's Disney, but they make it in Bristol. Yeah. Interestingly enough. Ah. Best film, uh, Cloud with a Chance of Meatballs 2, How to Train Your Dragon 2, Mr. Peabody and Sherman, Planes, Rio 2, The Lego Movie, Turbo, Frozen, and Muppets Most Wanted. Turbo? Mmm, Turbo. Does that really belong there? It's a big list. <laughs> I mean, planes as well. Let's... Yeah. What, did that set the world alight? Well, um... Or was it regarded as a sort of disingenuous extension of a pre-existing franchise made merely for profit? Oh, there, was no, there was no escape in that, was there? Even throughout its sort of marketing campaign and things like that, there was no kind of... There's no really, there's no real escape in that, is there? There's, there's nothing that you can that you can take that you can use to to take that away from it, which is a it's a bit mm. of a shame as well. I mean, they released a sequel as well, and it's Fire and Rescue, and it kind of makes you think, all right, so you've modified the plane, that's another toy. But anyway, I think the the, the feature film which has planes on the list was actually chosen by kids. I have to say that shines a rather chilling spotlight on just how out of touch. I am with my inner child. <laughs> Television, uh, animated-wise, you've got Phineas and Ferb, regular show, and The Amazing World of Gumball. 
and you got loads of like sort of less important live action things as well quite a lot of categories there and uh, quite a lot of hopefully animation will walk away with an armful of awards it's the landscape of children's television will depend on it think of the children won't you think of the children <laughs> so who, are you, who are you rooting for most of mm. all I, we've said it. We've said it before. I'll say it again. I really want to see Sarah and Duck start taking awards, you know, serious awards, because it deserves it. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to see something as as sort of visually entertaining and exciting as Gumball uh, nominated for so much. There's not many there which I would be upset if I saw take away an award. What are you rooting for, Ben? Let's see, Junior Bake Off, and. Uh uh, Pokemon X, but not Pokemon Y. <laughs> the shortlist for the Royal Television Society Awards, Northwest. I'm going to give a little bit of a sort of highlight to this because they, they asked me up to be a judge, which I was incredibly um, honoured to be, and but only because it was a great opportunity to watch uh, animation from the Northwest and see that the Northwest, um, you know, the, with Media City being the, the main hub, is a fantastic kind of sort of buzzing, energetic sort of lump of animation creativity at the moment. The shortlist has been narrowed down to to um, CITV Share a Story, Dinosaur Ate My Homework, um, CITV Share a Story, Captain Jack Pants, um, Strange Hill High again, uh, and Postman Pat's Special Delivery Service. Um, so yeah, CITV, CBBC and uh, McKinnon Saunders there. All up for an award. Uh, interesting uh, that this is the animation slash puppetry category because it meant that we got to watch some kind of puppetry as well. With animation? We watched animation alongside it, but some of it was just plain like Muppets. Crikey. Yeah. And so the only kind of puppetry thing that's on the, sh- the, 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 the shortlist, the final shortlist, is Strange Hill High. Um, which, yeah, I recommend watching. They're all great, you know, such such great productions there. And if anyone's interested in finding out a little bit more about last year's Share a Story, if they search for that on Squiggly, I mean, if you can search for Dinosaur Ate My Homework or Captain Jack's Pants, uh, you will find uh, interviews with the, with the directors and animators of each of last year's Share a Story um, animations. Always something extra with Squiggly, in it? Always something extra. We give and give and they take and take. So just released uh, this past weekend in the UK was the new film from Real FX, The Book of Life. Yeah, The Book of Life. It looks very exciting. It certainly looks enticing and, and original and, and unique. In Julia Young's article on squiggly.com, uh, it certainly sounds exciting. Mm-hmm. It's been teasing for a while, hasn't it? Trailer-wise and, 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 and visuals and, and things. That, you know, It's been on people's mind for a while. Uh, mainly because it's so different. I think we spoke about the trailer a couple of podcasts ago. So different to the usual sort of CG animation diet that we're all sort of fed. Well, more crucially, it's it's a bold step away from the last film they made, Wait, which three birds. It was exactly you know that that mold of seen it all before. Mm-hmm. That one also showed up on Netflix not that long ago, and I skimmed it just out of sort of curiosity, and it was pretty much exactly what you would imagine it to be. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's it's nice, at least, that something like The Book of Life has, you know, this this 
cultural visual identity that is aware of its limitations and says, okay, we'll have fun with it and we'll do something different. This isn't the kind of CG film that's going to break the kind of ground in the animation that the Popeye film will mm-hmm. or, or appears to be doing. Possibly, you know, that just wasn't something that interested them as far as the story. But they've, you know, they've gone with a story motif and they've found a way of making it work, which is that these characters are... It's a story within a story. The story is being told, sort of acted out in sort of wooden block puppets. And so then we enter the world of the story and the characters throughout the film are as such sort of puppets. So their posability is automatically limited, but that kind of works for, you know, the design style and what they're meant to be. So it's a good, uh, good little workaround there. Mm-hmm. There are ways to make something really stand out outside of the really, really super mainstream Hollywood system of, of making films. And uh, I think they've done a very good job. Hmm. Story-wise, there's a, the slight sort of criticism of it has been that while a lot of these CG films tend to really cater to the general audience in the sense that, you know, grown-ups are going to get a, a lot of a kick out of it, the writing on the wall is that this one is a little more slanted to the younger audience. So no uh, no dad jokes? Well, I mean, possibly one or two. I, maybe they've snuck them in so slyly as to have uh, gone unacknowledged. But it does seem that, you know, certainly the major strength is, is just what they've done with it visually. Mm-hmm. And it is wonderful. I mean, you could, just looking at the stills, not even, you know, having to see them animated. We have an interview with the director of this film, Jorge Gutierrez, who's worked in animation for a while. He's responsible for the Nickelodeon show El Tigre. The Adventures of Manny Rivera. Ah, the wrestling one. So it was a feature film. This certainly looks like a, a strong direction, both for him and for the studio itself. I think this could be one of those things that really helps put real effects on the map. Fingers crossed, because I know at least uh, one person who worked on this film who uh, I hold in very high regard. So it would be nice if, uh, if, if good things happened. So without further ado, here's director Jorge Gutierrez from The Book of Life. Um, I saw the film on Friday and I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I wanted to ask you, where did did the story come from? How much of it was sort of inspired by traditional stories and how much of it was you as a writer? Uh, Well, definitely very much inspired by the stories I heard from my family growing up, from my grandfather, in the way he had to compete uh, to win the love of my grandmother and the way my father had to compete win the love of my uh, my mom and then all the stuff I had to do to win the love of my, of my wife all the stories are in the movie uh, and, and also the movie is very much inspired by the Greek myth of Orpheus oh wow uh, a musician going to the underworld for his beloved so while it it, 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 it takes place in Mexico it's very much inspired by a lot of uh, myths and, and folktales from all over the world and of course, it sounds very personal to you as well, having all that personal experience. And I suppose a, a big part of it was bringing some Mexican culture into American cinema. Absolutely. Uh, when I grew up, I honestly didn't see myself up on the screen. And I kept wondering when we were going to show up. So I kind of made it my mission to try to showcase uh, my culture. Yeah, that's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. And how much of the culture in the film is actually based on fact, on real Mexican culture? Uh, very much, a lot of, you know, the, the mythology of the ancient gods, it's all kind of made up. Uh, okay. This is a version of, of, I always say, this is not a documentary. This is a, a magic version of the Mexico that I remember uh, as a kid. This is the Mexico that I 
eyes of love. But this is my fantasy version of what I imagined uh, it was like. No, that's brilliant. And does that also sort of tie into where the wonderful, wonderful style of the film came from? You know, it's so original, it's so refreshing. Is that also to do with the sort of imaginative nature of it then? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the look of the film is very much inspired by uh, Latin American and Mexican folk art. And okay. this is art that's not made, uh, you know, it's not very expensive, it's very accessible. It's the type of art that you buy in the market when you buy a watermelon. You also buy a little sculpture, and you take it home. And so it's the type of art that your kids play with, and it has a lot of imperfections, which to me make it really charming. And so our movie is very much a love letter to all those things. All the characters are made of wood and metal. And to me, it was like a Mexican Pinocchio toy story, <laughs> giving, giving all these characters charm uh, and by how different they look. And they also represent, you know, different ideas of, of the history of Mexico. Oh, that's completely fantastic. And was that an immediate, an, an immediately obvious choice that you wanted to do? Or did that sort of happen in the concept stages, that decision to make it that style? Uh, no, it, it started in the, in the, in the script. Uh, my wife, Sandra, designed all the girls. I designed all the male characters. We're both uh, also designers. And so from the beginning, I, I always envisioned this magical world of, of wooden puppets. And in a way, it was also a good way to be able to tell a magic story and get away from bullets and guns and blood and <laughs> all those things by keeping it really magical. As I say, as well, it was incredibly refreshing. I really, really enjoyed that. And do, do you know how did the animators find animating those sort of blocky characters? Because when I saw the the posters for the film I did think oh that's going to be a challenge but it was beautifully fluid the animation oh it was in the beginning it was really really hard a lot of the animators were really angry at me <laughs> uh, sure enough as you said because of the way they're built they're not naturally designed for animation so our animators had to work extra hard to make it smooth and to make it feel unique and I think by having these characters be so different it made them animate in ways that they weren't used to. Yeah. I think we found a new, more unique way to, to tell a story with these guys. Because what I always kept saying to them were, these characters are very used to their proportions. So yeah. they, are, they move in a certain way, and they figured out how to move. And, you know, it's like if you had three legs in real life, you just <laughs> figure out how to get around with it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. And I really like, like the character design as well. So all of Manolo's family are obviously um, matadors. But somehow you managed to get very different matador. You know, they all have their very own style to them. I thought that was very good. Um, and, and if you notice, for example, they all have a curl in their hair. Yes, I did. Manolo from the same family. Yeah, it and was also, great. Uh, Manolo is the only. There's a lot of mustaches. In the movie, <laughs> and Manolo is the only one without a mustache because he's a rebel. Ah, okay. I like that. I like that very much. I also like how the moustache ended up punching a guy in the final fight. I thought that was a great touch. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> so this was your first time directing a feature film. So how did you find it? Well, you know, I, I, uh, I always said, if this is the last one I get to direct one, I'm going to put everything in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I might not get another chance. But it was, it was really, really hard. But at the same time, it was a dream come true. I always like to say that uh, it was like it was my birthday every day, <laughs> uh, my birthday party every day. But then some days I was a piñata and everybody got to hit me. It was, uh, <laughs> it was not fun. 
<laughs> that's absolutely great. So you'd do it again if you had the opportunity? Oh, absolutely. I'm already working on the next thing. Oh, that's great. No, I don't know how you'd follow yeah, it, though. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's another animated movie. But the day we finished, I said, I'm never going to do this again. It's too hard. <laughs> I went to sleep, and the next day I said, I'm ready to go. Let's do it again. <laughs> oh, that's great. And so how was it working with the team at Real FX and then with 20th Century Fox as well? It was a dream come true. Real FX is a young studio, and they took a chance on me. And so I feel like I owe them everything. <laughs> and then 20th Century Fox is our co-financer and distributor. They liked what we were doing, and again, they took a big chance. Our movie is very different. It's not. It doesn't look or sound like a regular animated movie. So for these big studios to support me and support our movie, it's a dream come true. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I can't stop saying how wonderfully refreshing it was. I, I just really, really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, no... That's another thing with directing this film. It was such a packed film when it comes to story content. Did you ever feel overwhelmed? Oh, every day. Every day <laughs> I feel really overwhelmed. And I have perhaps too many ideas. I just tried to put everything in the movie. And Guillermo del Toro, our producer, was really good about making sure I didn't overdo it. So he, I, you know, without Guillermo, this movie would not have gotten made. Did you enjoy collaborating with him? Oh, yeah. I, I always joke that I feel like I was a little kid dressed up like Robin playing in my <laughs> yard, and then the Batmobile pulled up, and the door opened, and Batman said, Get in! We're going to go fight crime! And that's <laughs> what I felt like working with Guillermo. Uh, you know, he's my hero. He's someone I've always admired, but cannot believe that I've become friends with him, and I, I get to hang out with him. Definitely a dream <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. I don't suppose I'm allowed to ask about your next project, am I? Uh, well, they haven't announced it yet, but it's definitely coming. I yeah. think they're going to announce it really soon. Okay. I just wonder, how do you think you're going to follow this film? Because it seems so personal to you, both with the Mexican culture and with, as you say, the story coming from your own personal experience. Do you think that well, it'll uh, ever be uh, the same again? You know, all the stuff I've ever done, uh, it's always based on my on my experiences and things that have happened to my family. Mm -hmm. And I have a really big family, so that's <laughs> a lot of stories. <laughs> uh, I, 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 obviously, I will always make things that are a love letter to Mexico. Uh -huh. So I, I have a lot of more tales to tell. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Um, how involved were you in the voice casting, I wondered? Uh, well, I wrote the film for Diego Luna originally, uh -huh. and I didn't know if he could sing. So <laughs> it, was a, it was kind of a big chance. And he didn't know that he could say <laughs> a record. And then from that point forward, uh, it was just a, a matter of chemistry. I mm -hmm. knew Zoe Saldana and Diego had uh, played a couple in the Spielberg movie, The Terminal. But they mm -hmm. didn't speak a single line to each other. It was all looks, but I could tell they had all this beautiful chemistry. And then the third member of the love triangle was Channing Tatum. And I wanted Joaquin to be voiced by someone that... You know, every man admired and every woman <laughs> wanted to hang out with. And so, I honestly don't think you'd say yes. But when I pitched him the movie, uh, he fell in love with it. And then after the pitch, he took me aside. And he was very serious. And he said, Jorge, you know I'm not Mexican, right? And, we both up, and I said, Channing, even though this movie takes place in Mexico, I want the voice cast to be from all over the world. And I want different ethnicities. And I, honestly, this is a universal story. And who better to personify this giant superhero <laughs> of Latin America? 
I told him, you're going to be Captain Latin America in the movie. <laughs> and he, he jumped in and we had a blast. No, that sounds great. So you wanted to appeal to the whole world in your, you know, love letter to remembrance of the dead then? Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of my favorite films, and Guillermo always says this, in order to be universal, you need to be specific. So, I, you know, I looked at Amelie and, and City of God from, from Brazil, you know, Love Actually, I, I love that movie too. These movies are very unique to their countries. Yeah. They're super universal. No, that's absolutely great. And so with all this, there was so much story content. There was a bit, certainly in the character of Maria, you clearly tried to get the feminist aspect in. Was that something that you really wanted to push? Absolutely. It's funny, it's funny you should say that. Uh, we just showed the movie in Mexico, and a reporter said, so this is a feminist movie. <laughs> I said, well, if feminism means that men and women are equal, then absolutely this movie is feminist. <laughs> well, it was again very very nice to see so did you take any inspiration for your characters from any obviously you said the storylines came from yourself your parents and your grandparents but did you specifically design any of them around any real people uh yes uh, for example uh the candle maker is kind of based on me uh, <laughs> and then the Balba, the mischievous god it's my love letter to the films of Guillermo uh-huh. There's a little references to, to everything in there. Uh, my wife, uh, Sandra, designs all the female characters, and I design all the male characters. Uh-huh. So, it, it, in a weird way, we, we got to uh, we got to pay homage to our families. <laughs> and how did you just how did you work out the sort of mythology of the world? Then you said it isn't really from Mexico; it was all invented. How did you come to the idea of the land of the remembered and the land of the forgotten? Well, I've always loved that idea that as long as we tell the stories of those who came before us, as long as we remember them, they, you know, they're with us. So I figured, well, if they're with us, they would live in a place that's created by memories and by the nostalgia and by the love we have for them. And so that was the inspiration for the land of the remembered, this land of, of memories. And, you know, when you're a kid and you grow up, you remember things tasting a certain way and houses being a lot bigger than you remember. Uh, so that's where that inspiration came from. And the land of the forgotten is the opposite. You know, when you forget a toy or when you forget uh, a friend or when you forget someone, you don't say their name anymore and you don't talk about them anymore. That yeah. world was the void of color, the void of music. Uh-huh. So I always said uh, there, there's nothing worse than forgetting yeah, I thought it was a lovely idea, the sort of the reunion of Manolo with his mother in the land of the remembered. And I did think, what do you think Joaquin's reunion with his father would be? Well, uh, it's funny you should bring that up, but that is, uh, that is one of the ideas for the next chapter of the, ah. the trilogy. <laughs> I always envisioned this to be, you know, the first one about Manolo, the second one about Joaquin, and the third one about Maria. Fantastic. So you definitely see it becoming a series. Yeah, it was, it was, I always conceived it as a trilogy. Oh, that's new information to me. I think that's very exciting. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so, again, I'm not allowed to ask about the next films, am I? Uh, they haven't announced it yet, but uh, it's, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear you're excited about it. That's very exciting. And I like how you... I was reading up on the film before, obviously, this interview... And I saw that your wife works with you on all of your productions. You know, how is that kind of relationship, working together, living together? Is she a great oh, yeah. collaborator? 
We've been together since high school, since we were 17 years old. Oh. I proposed to her two weeks after we met. And so <laughs> I've never not worked with her. And so we don't even know what that's like. And anything I do, uh, you know, she's always been the inspiration. And she gets to be the one who sees everything and, and, and sort of reads my scripts and sees my designs before anyone. So I, I very much depend on her uh, to do things. And as you can imagine in the movie, uh, Maria is, is, is kind of based on her. She's always growing up very rebellious. She comes from a family of, of her father was a doctor and all her sisters are doctors. She was the rebel. She wanted to be an artist. No, oh, wonderful. And so she helped you with the writing, with the character design, with everything else. Was there anyone else who you particularly collaborated with or was it very much uh, you two against the world? Well, you know, with the, the mentoring of, of Guillermo del Toro, our producer, and then also I have a writing partner, Doug Langdell, who I used to have a TV show with my wife called El Tigre. Uh -huh. He was uh, our head writer on that show. And then on the art side, we had a, a great production designer from El Salvador named Simon Varela, and mm -hmm. then our art director, Paul Sullivan, from the United States. So it was a very multicultural team in the beginning. Yeah, and so it kept it fresh and inspired, having all those different perspectives on it. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things I really loved. Uh, one of the things we do in Mexico is we take things from other countries and we kind of make them our own. <laughs> so, for example, you know, the, the Radiohead on Creep or, you know, Mumford and Sons, I Will Wait. Uh, <laughs> we got to do our spin on those songs, and our composer, Gustavo Santolaya, uh, loved taking existing beautiful beautiful songs putting a latin twist in them yeah i really enjoyed that actually i thought the combination of sort of the latin twist on the popular songs and then some original songs as well i thought that worked really nicely and you know in the beginning i didn't think the bands would let me use their songs <laughs> I, I put them in the script and everybody said well be ready to take them out because you're not going to get them <laughs> one by one the bands really got into our movie and, and kind of understood what we were going for they allowed us to use song. Oh, that's lovely to hear, and I think they really added to it. I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, well, thank you so much for talking to me. I really, really enjoyed the film, as I say, and very excited at the prospect of more to come. So thank oh, you very much. Thank you so much, and, and thank you for all the kind words. <laughs> all right, you have a good day. You too, take it easy. Okay, bye-bye. So that was Julia Young chatting with Jorge Gutierrez, the director of The Book of Life, out in cinemas now. Just in time for All Hallows' Eve, and possibly the Day of the Dead. What day is that? The 31st of October through to the 2nd of November. Ah. So it's three days of the dead. So a film that's been doing the rounds uh, and exciting people in festivals uh, across the world recently has been The Dam Keeper. And it looks to be in an incredibly strong position as we go through to like the major awards seasons, um, I dare say. Um, have you seen The Dam Keeper, Ben? I certainly have. And um, what were your impressions of this film? Well, it was a, it was an absolute across-the-board crowd-pleaser. Mm -hmm. In a way, it sort of realises what so many people over the last, you know, since the culture, I think, of, of concept art books really kind of hit their stride. The sort of very frequent comment you'd get from people is like, wouldn't it be great to see a film that just looks like this? Yes. That has this quality of art to it, that has this degree, this textural degree 
amazing use of light and, and atmosphere and environment that is, you know, usually then translated into a very hyper-real, photorealistic uh, CG environment for the finished film. And yet you almost think, well, well, what if it maintained that kind of painterly look to it? How wonderful would that be? Mm-hmm. Well, Dice Tsumi and uh, Robert Kondo have uh, done pretty much exactly that. It's, uh, it's kind of jaw-dropping in a way. It is, it, and it, it doesn't just have the style. I mean, the film itself has, has an awful lot of substance as well. It seems that there's a kind of a trade-off with short films, is that it will either look good and the story will be weak, or the story will be fantastic, and the look may not be to everyone's taste. But this film is as good-looking as it is, as its narrative is is great. You know, I, I, I really enjoyed the, the setup of the entire thing, um, you know, the journey of the characters and then the payoff. You know, it is a great piece of work. It's not so much surprising, but it's it's kind of great to know that these guys, um, when they started this kind of project, they had no experience in directing, little experience in writing and little experience in, in everything else that you need to make a film. They knew how to make something look good. And, you know, they have made something look that looks amazing. Uh, but the rest kind of had to come to them during the process of making this film. And to see a kind of a first film and a film that two people have done, they've worked together. They're, it's their debut film and they both managed to kind of work together so well without kind of treading on each other's toes or, you know, compromising Oh, well, you know, we, we don't know. They may have compromised, but it still looks amazing. It's an incredible feat. Mm, indeed, and I think that uh, pretty much the whole industry can get on board with that. It just seems like a bit of a shoo-in for all the, the major accolades it has coming its way, frankly. The very exciting thing about the film as well is, is that you can tell that the directors are excited about it as well. Yeah. It's not something that's been produced by, although they're from Pixar, they're not from Pixar anymore. Um, they've set up their own company, Tonko House, which they're incredibly excited about. They're handing their film into all these festivals, and if it gets accepted into a festival, they create artwork for the festival and they promote the film in a, such a sort of a kind of hands-on kind of interactive way, and it's it's fantastic. Their their Facebook page is very interactive, and you know the the guys who want to just share their art you know, with the world. And that's, that's great. Mm-hmm. The circumstances behind it actually getting off the ground were very much sort of self-started, weren't they? Uh, yeah, exactly. They, they had finished work without giving away too much. The interview's coming up like, but they'd finished working on Monsters University. Um, Dyson Robert had become friends over time and they decided let's make a short film with our time off. And that steadily evolved into, you know, the project got bigger and bigger, you know, Pixar initially helping, but Pixar being supportive of them to them kind of flying the nest in a way and, and, and making their own way. This isn't a Pixar film. The people who worked on it used to work at Pixar, but it kind of embodies the quality that the best craftspeople uh, from Pixar and the kind of art of books and things like that have. And that's no surprise because when you flick through, you know, flick through your, your um, art of Toy Story 3 Flick through your art of Monsters University. Flick through your art of Ratatouille and and all these films, and you'll see Dice's name. You'll see Robert's name, and you'll see just some you know high quality work. 
and it's that high quality work which is translated into their debut you know directorial you know debut <laughs> yeah their debut directorial debut yeah it's so good i said it twice so let's hear from Dice Tsutsumi and Robert Kondo about The Dam Keeper. My name is Dice Tsutsumi, and I'm uh, Robert Kondo. And both of us are former art directors at Pixar. We're directors of a short film we made last year called The Dam Keeper. It's an 18-minute uh, animated short that's uh, painted in our styles. We tried to animate a painting, basically. Um, yeah, and we're super happy to talk with you, Craig. Well, really, I guess I'd like to start the interview by really just congratulating you both on the success that the Dam Keeper is having. Uh, having seen it myself, I can honestly say all the praise it's getting is justified. Wow. Well, first of all, thank you thank, so much. Thank you very much. Um, you know, it really was a labor of love, and, and it was so much about the two of us kind of learning how to become directors, learning, kind of applying what we had learned in the big feature film studios. So, you know, we really didn't know how it might be received. Um, and, you know, the community, especially kind of the art community, animation community, has been so supportive and so patient given that we're in this festival thing. So really a lot of people haven't seen it. And um, it's just been amazing that people have been on this journey with us and, and kind of following along with us. Yeah, it was one of those like excitement that we didn't expect and um, it's nice to be in it now because uh, we've have we've had a very nice reception of the film and like Robert said a lot of people haven't seen the film but still kind of gave such a almost like unconditional support which has been tremendous to us awesome so so what were your um, you said you didn't really go in with any expectations what was your sort of first feeling going into the festival circuit did you have any uh advice given from people beforehand or did you go into it sort of blind and just see how it how it would go that's a good question i mean we really wanted to see if we could make a film period um and you know both of us had never directed or written a story before and uh it was important for us to prove to ourselves and you know we had a lot of crew members that did their duty on the dam keeper for the first time in their career kind of you know they normally do slightly lesser responsibility in their you know everyday jobs so i think just to, just the fact that we finished it that was we thought the end of this journey and you know it's kind of like the icing on the cake uh, we thought you know to kind of if we were accepted by any festivals like one or two we would be super happy that was kind of like the expectation huh yeah it's so interesting because in the beginning, all we wanted to do was finish the film. But finishing the film has changed, like the meaning of it has changed over time uh, quite a bit. Almost, you know, especially over the last year, we thought we were done um, over a year. We almost finished the film almost a year ago, like kind of final frame out. Um, and the, this last year has just been part of the experience. Like going to festivals has been incredible. Meeting the independent, especially the independent filmmaking community is so passionate and so, we're so excited to even just be a part of it. Um, and to see all the amazing film that actually gets done around the world, both live action and animated, is really incredible to be a part of that kind of community. Um, has been overwhelming. I don't think like we went into it with very many expectations. We haven't really, in our filmmaking careers, we haven't really ever experienced 
that aspect of it. Um, and so that's actually become part of the experience. And even now, as we kind of begin to think about how we might release the film uh, to our audience, um, you know, it continues, the project continues to go. Um, so, yeah, it's been really interesting to try to figure out what it's like to finish a project, actually. Now you've done the festival uh, experience or you've tasted a little bit, has that changed your mindset going forward with your own studio now? Do you think it will change the way you approach making a film or, or marketing it? Or, or do you think you'll just carry on the way you've done so <clears throat> far? Yeah, I think it's totally changed the way we um, think about our next films, um, especially seeing it kind of in the context of just different audiences. Our film has been received by like audiences that are made up of children. Um, we've seen it with the animation community. We've seen it with uh, kind of a older audience and just seeing the broad kind of audience and how it reacts to it really makes us realize more than anything, anything we do in the future, we really want to, rather than externally going out and seeing what people want, kind of searching internally for stories that are really deep within us. And we've really spent a lot of time, you know, in developing our future projects, talking to each other, getting to know each other a lot better, to find what stories are really, you know, at the core of it, human stories. Um, and so it's really kind of the interaction with the, the community out there in the world in a way has really gotten us to sit down and dig deeper um, and want to tell stories kind of from that place. The thing that struck me the most about The Dam Keeper is that the story is very rich and heartwarming and it is such an identifiable uh, theme that I think everyone young and old can, can identify with, you know, looking to be accepted. Uh, so how did the story come about? Did one of you come up with it or was it a collaboration that just progressed over time? Yeah, what was really interesting about how we came about this story was that we, we didn't start this project with this story in mind. Uh, in fact, we actually didn't have any story when we started and it was more like, hey, you want to just make a short film together and see what we can do, see, you know, see where is the limit, you know, and... Um, it really took us quite a bit until we get we got to the stage where we could call it a dam keeper, right? Like we had like, I would say four or five stories beforehand because the story idea wasn't the focus of the project in the beginning. It was really about, can we work together? Can we do something together to do something that we didn't think we could, we were able to achieve? Yeah, both Dice and I are kind of, this is our first time directing together. It's almost the first time we actually sat down and wrote something together. And so, you know, we make a lot of films together back at, you know, when we were at Pixar and we collaborated really well, but writing something together is really different. Um, so, you know, I just always think of it as two artists trying to hold the same pencil and, and make a drawing. It, it's really, there's a lot of things to work through just as far as who, who we want to be as, as kind of directors. Um, ego gets in the way, obviously, but you know, that journey of going through five stories to get to this one. And even, you know, I mean, coming from a larger studio, one of our missions was to also run a healthy kind of production. And our first kind of a mantra that we kept chanting as we went into production was like, let's lock the story before we begin production. Because, you know, a lot of big studios suffer from that, um, not quite locking the story, but working on the story as you move through production and we always saw it as this costly thing and we said we're not going to do that um we found it was actually close to impossible to avoid that 
Um, <laughs> and so we actually, you know, kind of now realize there's actually something great that happens. The dynamic between production happening and story evolving um, and also getting the crew involved with that aspect of the film so that they're not just executing, but that, you know, we really tried to make it so that um, the crew itself was participating in, in the story we were going to tell. Um, and it turned out, you know, in hindsight, and, and I can't say that it was our intent necessarily, but in hindsight, it, that was a really great part of the filmmaking process that I think both of us are really proud of. So, so what would you say going from Pixar to writing your own your own story and, and directing it? What was the biggest learning curve you had to go, or the biggest thing that surprised you going from Pixar to, to working on the Downkeeper? I mean, I think both of us are art directors that have worked on. We worked on Toy Story three and Monsters University together, art directing um, those films. And you know, we come from the art department, which is a small part of this big machine. But you know, when you're working on that small part you really feel like I want to put everything I have into this painting I'm doing, into the set I'm designing, or into the sequence you're lighting. And you just pour your heart and soul into this thing and you invent little stories behind every little prop and every little decision you make. And you go and you, you know, present this to the director. And, and I think working in film um, on a big scale like that always made me feel like, oh my gosh, what I'm doing is so important. Directing a film on our own really gave us context for where we actually fit in the filmmaking process and what kind of questions or solutions that we present that actually help the story versus things that are almost just for me um, or for Dice. Um, so it was great in the sense that it really gave us context. It was humbling to direct and realize that actually in the process of making our film, we probably spent the least amount of time on the design and artwork of the film. We spent so much time in story, camera, editorial. It was a humbling thing to see the the part the part we played in the big machine of of kind of these large productions versus the reality of being in the driver's seat and seeing seeing yourself almost and where you fit in that process um, really changed um, changed through making this film. With regards to the style, I mean. It's such a beautiful art direction that you, that you took with it. The, the lighting, the style, it's, it's just gorgeous. Was that a conscious effort on your part to go with that style? And, and what made you avoid going down sort of a typical 3D style like Pixar or, or Disney? Honestly, I think that was because we didn't have the resources to do 3D. And, you know, because we didn't know how many people would actually help us in the beginning. It was just two of us in the beginning. And the easiest thing to say is like, if we can do as much as we can by ourselves, that would be the best way to finish this project. And uh, we know how to paint, at least the way we paint. If the film looks like our paintings, we thought it would be the easiest approach. So it's not, it wasn't so much of a statement to say, we're going to do something different. Of course, we believed in this uh, painted, uh, animated painting um, style. We love that. But at the same time, we were focused so much on telling the particular story we wanted to tell. It was almost out of necessity, huh? Like we chose that style. Yeah. Also, before we began this, the year before, Dice had made this small animation for his project Sketch Travel that he had worked on. And it was almost like a little advertisement. Um, but he had done it almost completely, all the production stuff he had done himself. And it was kind of a cross between a children's book and it was not fully animated 
but like a little bit more beyond a children's book where it was just had very kind of limited animation. We looked at that and we said, oh my gosh, if there's two of us, we could do twice as many frames. Of course, you know, as we moved through it and our, our vision got more and more ambitious and we got more and more involved with more paint talented people and um, it got bigger and bigger, but that's really where it started, or at least gave us this kind of, I'd say, false confidence that, oh, we could do this, like, easy enough. Yeah, naivete. Do you think you would like to experiment going forward with other projects, or do you think you'd like to try and keep that sort of style a little bit in your work going forward? We hope, I think, as we move forward, that the projects that we continue to make get us more and more opportunities to experiment and play. We realized that embracing the limitations that we had led to something that actually turned out to be a good thing. And I think we want to continue to do that, embrace limitations, but also explore more. I think I always believe that it's not so much about the execution of these looks, so much as trying to capture the feeling of the kind of work we want to do. We want to pick the mediums and kind of looks that are appropriate to the kind of stories we want to tell. Um, would be the most exciting thing for us is to play in, you know, stop motion or 3D. We really love, we're, I mean, we're super fans too. I mean, we get super excited about seeing all the amazing stuff out there. All the shorts, especially, yeah. just inspiring. And we want to play too, you know, in, that, in those other worlds. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, coming from animation myself, I think the festival circuit is not many people are aware of it they always think of like the big studios and they don't really think of grassroots studios so i guess like i mean there are lots of students that will listen to this so you mentioned the big films you've worked on uh, such as toy story 3 ratatouille so going now you've experienced both a big studio like pixar and now working uh, independently at your own studio what are the the biggest sort of changes differences both good or bad um that students might not really be aware of Hmm, that's a good question. Yeah. I'll say this, like I think both of us have been incredibly blessed to work in the large studios. The studios have some of the most amazing artists I think you can find in the world. So getting to go to a place where you're collaborating with hundreds of artists is an incredible experience. Like I I think like I've learned so much and benefited so much from working there and I still, you know, both of us still have so many friends and so many people that we respect that obviously work in that industry. But I'd say the biggest kind of difference is, uh, you know, all of it is a learning experience. For me, myself, I think that I almost couldn't see it any other way that going from school into the larger studio was a good continuation of my education, going from an illustration background, kind of having a niche kind of skill that applied to what Pixar wanted to make was a great entry point for me into filmmaking. While I was at Pixar, I got to see all the parts I wanted to see to get to the point where I realized I really wanted to make my own films. Um, I met Dice there and Dice had this similar ambition and in a way, you know, I look back and the great thing about a, about a studio of that scale is like you really can capitalize or, or kind of <clears throat> utilize these kind of unique skills you might have. Maybe you don't have all the f- skills you feel like you, you need to tell the stories that are in your head. So a big studio is a great place to meet people who are capable of doing that on such a large scale. Um, and then also apply those, those things that you're really good at and then fill out the rest of your skill set. Independent filmmaking is great because on the, on the flip side of that, 
you're in there making film all the time. Um, and so you're practicing all those things, stumbling and failing. You know, I don't know what it would have been like for me if I would have started as an independent filmmaker, um, but I'm super happy with kind of where I've been and the people I've met and the experiences I've had. And to be here now as a kind of an independent filmmaker, you know, I feel like I have, I'm, we're armed with kind of all of these experiences from the large studios to go and make our film. Um, we weren't, we didn't study animation um, in school. Both of us come from a more traditional painting background. And so there was a lot of, of kind of exposure we needed to the animation world and the filmmaking world that I think that these large studios really were great at providing to us. Because you didn't come from an animation background, do you think your style was quite unique coming into like a place like Pixar or whether artists that already sort of use that style and, and helped you progress? People have different opinions, but I think we believe, we believe that the um, visual development, like concept art, like designing a film is about communicating your ideas uh, to the director and to the crew and ultimately to the audience. And uh, artistic, artistic style almost doesn't mean, doesn't matter at all. And obviously, unfortunately, I've seen, you know, I've worked at three different somewhat major studios and there are people still looking at portfolios just kind of only applying what they know when they're taking, you know, candidates. And so it's not like uh, everybody feels the same, but we believe that the sort of artistic styles, you know, wouldn't matter as much as the way you're trying to communicate because ultimately visual development um, artwork will not be in the final film, final product. And um, you can only do so much to help to communicate but unfortunately, some people make the mistake of like, I have to have this kind of look in order to work for animated feature or the you know visual development for films and television, which I really think is is not. Um, I don't. We don't really believe that's the way it should be. I think focusing too much on style is always tricky because you know we're really trying to tell stories that stand the test of time. And the trickiest thing to me about style is always, it's kind of about what's here and now. While it's always, I think for a lot of artists out there who look at our work, I th I'd say that I, th I think they look at our work and they see style. Um, style is kind of, it's like handwriting. I can't help the way that I write. It is what it is, but I haven't, like what I write and what I put down in words is probably what I hope the world focuses on more rather than the way I write. Um, and I'd say, like, you know, it's, we have thought about style, of course, but in terms of the list of priorities of things, I gotta say it's probably close to the bottom. It is the way we paint, it is the way I, I'm, a, I'm a product of all the influences and people I've worked with. I'm, you know, working with Dice closely has strongly influenced my work. People throughout my career has really, you know, I've kind of stolen from, from some of the best people I've seen in the industry. Um, and I'm continuing to kind of grow and change and that style, I hope doesn't define me so much as me kind of really using it to communicate ideas like I said. I mean, ultimately, right, the style is really who you are. And if that's the case, it's, uh, it is kind of important uh, because that, that is who you are. But at the same time, it's not one of those things that you can actually work on because that's, that's who you are, what you like, your sensibility. It's, it's your life experience that comes in play quite a bit. 
And is that something you've, you've learned more from directing yourselves and, and storytelling? You know, for me, I think day one at Pixar made that super clear. Um, in the hallways at Pixar, they always talk about the fact that we make movies, not art books, you know, and um, that's always stuck with me. And I think that, you know, from the very beginning, you know, the portfolio that I showed that got me into Pixar, if you look at the work I did on my first film, I'm actually surprised when I look back that it's not connected, like the thing that connects it is not the style at all or the way that I draw or anything. It's work that was completely different um, than anything I had done in school. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely something I think the industry is um, really about from day one is like, let's make film. It's all about filmmaking. You know, from artists like us to technical directors, you know, a place like Pixar is full of filmmakers more than anything. Um, so even if someone is working on the material that is sitting on a table, um, the best of are always thinking about how it fits into the film, how it progresses the story forward. Um, and, you know, I'd like to think that that's what we're chasing. Awesome. But now you're at Tonko House. What are your plans moving forward? Are you going to carry on working as a, a duo? We definitely are working together. Every day we spend in uh, this small box studio that's just big enough for the two of us. And, um, you know, we're really trying to figure out right now what the next right step is for us. We want to continue telling stories. We want to build upon what we did on the Dam Keeper. I think, you know, it's great visiting the festivals, but it's getting harder and harder to watch the film for ourselves because we've grown since then, I think. And I think we look at that and we see, oh my gosh, we could do so much better now and we could do bigger, better, longer format. Um, and so right now, we're really kind of afforded ourselves this time to sit down and really start digging into um, who we are as people and what stories we're really capable of telling um, and sharing with the world and, and you know we love world building we love kind of building these you know kind of fun fantastic believable worlds and I think we just want to keep doing that we want to keep making stuff and you know one thing that DICE has always talked about is also really thinking about the impact of the kind of stories we're going to be telling um, has also become a big part of what Tonko House is, is what is the impact of the kind of stories we want to tell, both in content and actually what a film could do um, for a small or larger community, whatever that may be. Um, really try to take that into consideration and, and really apply everything we know to telling great stories that mean something to us, but also hopefully mean something to the community that's out there. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, one thing we always talked about was, you know, let's make sure we always understand why we're doing this, you know. Let's not just focus on what we're doing it, but let's really focus on why. And uh, it, it's actually harder than we expected, you know, because every time we get excited about the certain stories that we are developing, we're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's make sure, why are we doing this, you know. Um, and really always kind of guided us to the 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 answer that we needed you know just we make let's make sure we left pixar for a reason we are doing tonko house for a reason or we're doing animation for a reason you know um not that we have a very clear why every single time we always get distracted you know just i think it's a natural process but we don't want to forget that we why we're doing this i also think we're at a unique place that we know won't last forever where we <coughs> no one has told us otherwise that we can't do it 
And I think we have this kind of naive, like, oh, we could do this. Um, and we know that's going to go away at some point. So we're trying to really embrace that and say, you know what, until someone tells us we shouldn't be doing this or, you know, we're starving and hungry, let's keep making, like, let's keep doing what we love doing and not look back and kind of just forge forward and see where it takes us. So, you know, we're excited about what the future holds, but we have, we really are excited about it, but also I think it's like anything that, anything that's really been worthwhile to us has always been this combination of excitement and terror. You know, like just kind of being scared of the risk that you're taking and the things that are at stake. But, you know, we're excited. I think we're excited. So that combination has become a comfortable place for us, I think. I guess this is a bit of a question maybe, but was it a hard decision leaving Pixar or did it just feel so right? I definitely can say this. I'm sure Robert agrees, but Pixar is definitely the best creative environment I ever worked at and even to my knowledge of other places that I never worked at but then my friends work at I, I do be- believe Pixar provides incredible environment uh, and I learned so much and I'm sure uh, I would have learned tons as well if I had stayed too but it um, it's not so much of the confidence I don't think but it was one of those things that I, I felt like uh, if we don't do it now, we won't ever do it. And it's one of those sort of things where you risk your family life career to do something that you're passionate about. There's a huge risk involved and most likely may not work out. Like, I, you know, we both felt like that shouldn't be the reason not to do it. If, it, if there's a possible, huge you know, possibility of not happening, shouldn't be the reason why we don't do it. That would really kind of uh, compromise the learning. Um, and uh, so we felt like it, it, we had no choice almost. Yeah, it, it was a hard decision because of, at least for me, because of fear. Not because, um, because I was afraid to lose all these people. I mean, I grew up there. That was my, really kind of my first real job. And you know, it's hard to leave home. I mean, it's hard to leave the nest. I think, like, Pixar is an amazing place, and, you know, we still talk with everyone there, and we still love, you know, we miss the people, for sure. And, you know, we knew that when we left, that we would miss a lot of people. Um, But from the day that we talked about it and decided, you know what, it's the right thing for us, it's the right natural progression for us if we want to make film, we have to take this step at some point, we hadn't done anything at Pixar that actually justified them giving us the kind of opportunities that we needed. We almost needed to take this risk. That was the right thing, both for Pixar and for us. Um, and I think Pixar has been nothing, even in leaving, they've been nothing but supportive. Um, and they continue in, in a lot of ways to support us. And I think that's what's so incredible about that place. And also what kind of made us made the fear kind of go away is it didn't feel like, it very much felt like leaving home where you felt like, you know, I don't know what the future holds, but I know that this place still continues to support me on some level. And I think that's what's incredible about that place. And, you know, and in that way, it felt more like leaving home and a natural progression. I've got to go off and do my thing. And, you know, and, and who knows, like, what the future holds. Like, for where we are right now, I think, I feel like we made the right decision because I feel every day 
um, challenged and, and every day is a new day and, and really hard, really a lot of growth. More growth has happened, I'd say, over the last you know, uh, 15 weeks that we've been gone than for a long time. And that's because of us, not because of Pixar, but because of where we put ourselves and, and how much we don't know and, and the acknowledgement of that. I think it's more that than anything. But um, yeah, that's kind of been what the journey has been a bit emotionally been like for us leaving a, a place like Pixar. Now now you've worked at Pixar and, and now for Small Studio, what would be your biggest advice to both students and professionals? You know, at least for me, I think that looking back, what I've benefited the most from is embracing change. And because the industry is constantly changing, because you never know what an opportunity actually looks like, it's really, to me, about being able to recognize as quickly as possible the opportunity and having a grand vision for where you actually want to go and seeing how these opportunities might fit. And the ability to adapt, especially in, in this world that you know we've just talked about and the world where I think we're going, adaptability and, and, and focus on what it is, why you're doing something, is I think fundamentally the most important thing is like, why are you making art? Why are you interested? Why are you listening to this podcast? Um, you know, like all of those things I think are, if I could go back, I feel like time, not time wasted, but time that could have been used more efficiently. Oftentimes I find pockets of time were because I spent more time thinking about the what or the how rather than the why and staying focused on where I wanted to go. And so I think like, and, and this is very like, you know, philosophical or whatever. But I, I think like for where we are right now, we spent a ton of time when, when we left Pixar talking about why. Why are we leaving? Why are we making films? Why are we making animated films? And I have to say that it's focused us so quickly, I think, on where we want to go and what we want to do. And, and I, I wish that I had done that a lot more throughout my career. Um, even when I was in school, I wish I did that a lot more. Why am I taking this class? Why am I learning these things? Where do I want to go with this? Um, because it, it, it so much reaches into the balance of your life, I think. You know, I, I think like it really reaches who you are as a person, what your lifestyle is, what you want your impact on the world to be. Um, it gets you thinking about all that, those things. And I think those are all fundamentally the reasons why I hope that we want to be artists is to affect the world in some way, um, leave something behind that, that is hopefully meaningful. What I really believe is that, uh, you know, by focusing on why, why part, uh, kind of uh, uh, makes it easy for you to focus more on the process rather than the result. Uh, especially in the early stage of your career, I know I was, you know, always uh, discouraged by the result, you know, where I fit in the class, you know, I'm, am I the best student or am I doing better or am I getting a job? I applied, but I'm not getting the call back. Um, but it's important that you don't get distracted by the result. Uh, hopefully you look at the process, you know, and the journey itself so that as long as you're moving forward, you have a faith and then you will get to the result you want at the end, but it may not come right away. Um, because sometimes, probably all, most of the times, the result is out of your control. But process is definitely in your control. 
So hopefully, you know,、um, if, especially if you're struggling, you don't focus on the result. Great, yeah, those good answers, good answers. Thanks so much, Craig. Thanks, Thanks for having us on. Thank you, Craig. That was Craig Smith chatting with Dai Susumi and Robert Kondo, the two directors of the Dam Keeper, who are setting the、uh, the festival circuit alight、mm. with this、uh, really quite astonishing piece of work. It's、um, <clears throat> in a sense that a picture tells a thousand words. It would be so much easier to just sort of encourage people to find imagery from this film because you see it and you're like, oh wow, okay, I get why this is something special, and you see a still from the film. And you know, it, you would you could be forgiven for thinking, oh, this is a sort of production development visual.、Mm-hmm. No, it's a still from the film. Yeah, and each frame, you know, has that level of、uh, detail. Yeah, the best thing, like to me, is just how well timed everything is because to create that level of, of fidelity to detail, you know, you it, it's not twenty four frames a second,、mm-hmm. but the sort of the concession with the frame rate. Timed absolutely perfectly, so the the subtle, the weight, the sense of you know character interaction, you know characters getting in fights, characters、uh, you know playing together, and、uh, the main occupation of、uh, the main character. Spoiler alert: he's a dam keeper. But what goes into that? What goes into a sort of daily role? Because sort of the visual of that is is just. Really superb. People are, are often kind of amazed by it, and they do think that it's CG. It, that you know, it's it takes place in a three D world, but it, that's just the rendering of this film.、Mm. It's a two D film. You know, the, the directors themselves say it's two D film, which I think is very interesting. Is it painting with light? I think it's just great, just absolutely amazing. So I'd say good luck to them, but it seems pretty redundant <laughs> at this point. Yeah. You know? But thank you、uh, to both of them for.、Uh... For chatting with us, and uh, uh, to Mr. Craig Smith for、uh, being our squiggly interviewer、yeah. and taking the reins on that one. Okay, so just one quick last plug before we finish here:、um, the Bradford Animation Festival is running again from the seventeenth to the twenty-second of November.、Uh, it looks like a great year. We've got Peter Lord,、uh, Mark Shapiro from Leica, Michelle Osolo,、uh, Factory Transmedia, Double Negative, Frame Store,、um, Irish Indie Animation Panel, John Aquin's Life Drawing Workshop. You can find out a lot more about the festival at nationalmediamuseum.org.uk/bradfordanimationfestival. Um, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is that Squiggly will be there on the twentieth of November at the National Media Museum, where the animation festival is held. Cafe at seven thirty p.m. will be hosting our regular animation quiz. We've done it for the last couple of years, and we really have a lot of fun.、Uh, fantastic prizes,、um, just a good laugh. It's free to enter,、um, and you can win yourself like an art of book,、uh, DVDs. Um, but you better make sure that you、uh, answer the questions correctly because it's a first come first served on the prizes. So you could end up with a booby prize. So do your research and come down to the National Media Museum Cafe for the twentieth of November, seven thirty p.m. It's taking place during the Bradford Animation Festival, and hope to see you there for the Squiggly Quiz. So another marvelous month of insights and quality guests from the Squiggly Animation Podcast. But we've got others to thank. Thank you very much to this episode's guests. Robert Kondo and Dice Tsutsumi, the directors of the Dam Keeper, and you can find out more about the Dam Keeper at thedamkeeper dot com. And you will be glad you did. Thanks also to Craig Smith for interviewing Robert and Dice, and to Julia Young for interviewing the director of the Book of Life, Jorge Gutierrez. Thank you also to Jorge. You can find out more about the Book of Life at bookoflifemovie 
www.bojackhorseman.com. Thank you also to Lisa Hannawalt, illustrator and art designer of Bojack Horseman. You can, of course, check out Bojack Horseman on Netflix.com. Lisa Hannawalt's work you can see at lisahannawalt.com. Her book, My Dirty Dumb Eyes, is out through Drawn and Quarterly now. As always, we're eager to hear from our lovely audience. You can get in touch, ben at squiggly.co.uk. Of course, you can reach out to us through squiggly.com. That's our website, you know. And we're on Twitter, at squiggly, S-K-W-I-G-L-Y, and uh, facebook.com forward slash squiggly magazine. We are still making Lightbox, our YouTube series of uh, mini animation documentaries. Check them out at youtube.com forward slash squiggly magazine. Well over an hour and a half of free animation documentaries put together by yourself there, Ben. Free! Tell your friends. The Squiggly Podcast is presented by Steve Henderson and Ben Mitchell with music by Wesley Allard and Ben Mitchell. It's produced and edited by Ben Mitchell. Don't forget for all the latest news, reviews, interviews, videos and a whole lot more from the world of animation, visit squiggly.com. Squiggly.